going to spend some time uh, understanding a, a biblical uh, perspective on the reality of who uh, God really is. Uh, so that by the end of the uh, series, we'll all have a really thorough, solid, biblical perspective of the, the nature of who God is. You say, well, why is that important? Well, that's important uh, because the reality is there are lots of views out there in the world about who God is, or more importantly, there's all kinds of views about who God ought to be. Have you ever heard somebody, for instance, say the phrase, as you're maybe talking about God, and they say something like, well, I just couldn't believe in a God who. You ever hear that phrase? Sure. Well, think about what they're doing when they say that. Well, I just couldn't believe in a God who. They just decided that they were going to determine what God ought to be and how God ought to be. Isn't that correct? That they were coming up with a definition of saying, well, now, this is what God ought to look like. The reality is that's the way it is out there in the world, that lots of people have different perspectives and have placed themselves in that position of saying, well, now, this is what I think God ought to be. Let me give you some examples. Uh, if you look at the next slide, that's my favorite uh, picture of Superman there. I like the one on the cover, but I grew up with this guy. How many grew up with that guy? Yes. Right? He was pretty cool. Uh, right, but you know, a lot of people kind of see God as that Superman, that God's just kind of all-powerful and God can just do whatever God wants to do and, and that's what he does. He just kind of does whatever he wants to do. Or the next guy here, we couldn't wait, must be the young people are up there. They like the Smurfs better than my Superman. Terry? No, you're a Superman generation up there. Or some people see God like this one here, the, the Smurf, you know, the old gray-haired guy who just is full of wisdom and stuff like that. And, and he just always kind of knows better, and he's just kind of this old, wise person. Well, or the next one, I also grew up on this one, underdog. What was underdog's favorite phrase? Oh, come on. Never fear, for underdog is here, right? Yeah, exactly. So what's God? God is this is this being, this person that you don't really need to pay any attention to because he's pretty worthless up until that time when you really have a problem. And when you really have a problem, then you need to say, Oh, God, please help me out on this one, because i got a lot of fear. He's kind of like underdog. He just kind of shows up, and then all of a sudden everything can be okay. You know, he's the God that you call on only in the case of, of uh, emergencies. Or there's some people who see God this way. That God is just kind of this relentless being who just continues to cause bad things to happen and punish and... God is just someone who just relentlessly creates problems. And they usually end up having situations and they say, God, why did you do this? Right? God is the one who always gets the blame for everything that happens uh, that is bad in their life. Or finally, there's this one here, kind of the Ebenezer Scrooge God. It is the, the God who is just cold and distant and aloof and really doesn't care about anyone or anything just kind of made creation and exited. What is the point of all this? The point of all this is to begin the series by, by getting a simple understanding. The simple understanding is we don't get to decide who God is or who God isn't. God simply is. What we'll do in this experience together is we will try to understand what God shows us 
about himself. That it's not about us deciding who God is or what God ought to be, but rather God simply is, and God is the one who reveals himself to us. So all we can do in this experience together now is try to understand, okay, who is this God? Who does God show himself uh, to be? He simply is, but what is he? So we're going to spend time looking at the attributes uh, of God. Today, it is for us to start at the very beginning of that, because before we can understand the attributes of God, it probably makes sense that we need to just decide together that God really is. That God really is. Is he real or is he fiction? Now, we could do that by just uh, cutting the sermon real short and just going to uh, one instance in the Bible and let the Bible just kind of tell us he is, right? You remember the instance when uh, Moses was being sent down to free the people of Israel down in Egypt, and Moses asked God the question and says, well, okay, if I go do this, God, who should I say sent me? So he's asking the identity question, like, who are Who would I tell him? Who are you? And God's answer was, I am. That would be enough, right? We could just kind of stop right there and get comfortable. The trouble for us is the world doesn't answer the question that way. The world won't let us take our book and use our book to say, see, God is. He told Moses, and then that should be good enough. Now, what we want to do this morning is try to turn our attention to some logical viewpoints, some logical uh, arguments that help us address those people around us who question us around the existence of God. Because if we just start quoting Bible to them alone, then they will just say, well, look, you're just using your book. You can make that book say whatever you want it to say. Heard that before, too? So what we've got to do is start with, is God real or fiction? And then turn to some basic arguments that have been around for the longest of time. What, I'm, what you're going to hear is not original, obviously, with me this morning. What you're going to hear is arguments that go back to guys like uh, St. Augustine. Uh, they go back uh, to uh, astounding people like uh, C.S. Lewis and R.C. Sproul. Uh, you can put in Thomas Aquinas in there. Some pretty uh, smart people, a whole lot better than I am. And these are classical arguments, logical arguments, that point us that God is absolutely correct, that the Bible is absolutely correct. And what's interesting is that as we look at these arguments, we're also going to be able to look at biblical texts that augment the arguments. So what we're doing is saying, look, here is a logical argument about the existence of God, and the Bible itself lends itself to support that logical argument. How cool is the Bible? It doesn't just prove it itself. It lends itself to prove outside of itself. Pretty cool? So let's start. You ready to go? The first one is a classical argument of uh, called the, the cosmological argument. It's the, uh, and uh, it came from uh, where kind of uh, argument. It came from where kind of uh, argument. The argument is simply one that says, well, okay, the universe uh, exists, and so therefore, because it exists, something had to cause it. Something had to make it into existence. That something had to bring about the reality uh, of the universe. There's not many people out there that believe that the universe in and of itself is an eternal expression. 
that it's always been and it will always be. I mean, we see the universe dying off, right? So the reality is there's few that even made, would try to make the argument that the earth, the earth or, or the universe has always been, but rather that somehow, through some cause, it came into existence. So the question is, how did it come into existence? And it starts a chain of thinking to say, well, okay, what caused the universe to come into existence? And then, well, what caused that to come into existence? And then, well, what, what caused that to come into existence? It's kind of like your kid growing up. And you, and you went through talking to them about God, and they came up with a question, and, and the cosmological question is one that goes like this. Well, where did God come from? Anybody, I mean, yes, I see at least one head shaking, I mean, right? I mean, that's the cosmological argument. It's like, well, if this happened, Big Bang Theory or whatever theory you want to grab out there, if this happened and it caused it to come into existence, well, what caused that? And, and well, okay, well, what caused that? And, and it keeps regressing back further and further and further until you get to a place you say, well, what caused that? And what caused that? And what caused that? Where you're left with is three solutions. In this argument, you're left with three solutions. Solution number one is that somehow it was self-caused. But then you're left always asking the regressive question, well, what caused that, what caused that, what caused that? That you're left in this eternal kind of regressive question of always asking what caused that and never getting anywhere to the end of the question. That's the same as the number two answer. The number two answer then is that it, it just is this continual chain of causes. That something caused something that caused something that caused something and no matter how far back you go, there's just an infinite string bead of causes. Or the third argument is that there is some eternal being that simply caused. That there is an eternal being that has always been that simply caused. And the only logical solution in the cosmological argument is that one right there. The only thing that makes any sense is the reality that there is an eternal being that, that simply caused and set in motion cause after cause after cause after cause. And of course, ironically, guess what the Bible's answer is? The Bible's answer is pretty clear to say, look, that, that's exactly what God is. God is real. God is absolutely real, and God is that one who caused. If you go to Hebrews 11 here, it says, Because of our faith, we know that the world was made at God's command. We also know that what can be seen was made out of what cannot be seen. We believe in something called creation ex nihilo. That's Latin for saying creation out of nothing. That simply, cosmologically, God spoke things into existence, that it was nothing, and simply God caused existence. The Bible would answer it also in Colossians 1, uh, saying, all things were created by God's Son, and everything that was made uh, for, everything was made for Him. God's Son was before all else, and by Him everything is held together. The Bible's answer is simply, listen, God is the cause. God is the cause. That as you chain that back and keep asking the question, what caused, what caused, what caused, ultimately you have to get to the place where you realize God simply caused. Got that argument? Aquinas would be happy. 
Aquinas would be happy. Of course, uh, we're still left with that little question, that nagging little question, by the way, that our kids answer, right? If we even get back to that and say, well, okay, God caused. We were there. Of course, the kids are always going to say, well, where did God come from, right? Here's the Bible answer to that, by the way. Just take those kids right to the Bible. Take them to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 says, why don't you say it with me? You have always been God. Long before the birth of the mountains, even before you created the earth and the world. What's the answer? Here's what I tell my confirmation kids. You ready? There has never been a time God has never been. There will never be a time God will never be. God is. Cute little jingle. There's never been a time God has never been. There will never be a time God will never be. God is. That's the answer. That's the answer. It is the answer to the cosmological argument that just says, look, God is. God is, and God caused all this to come into existence. The next argument that we can make for the existence of God is called the theological argument. Uh, the way I subphrase it is, hey, it keeps on ticking, uh, right? And it's uh, that argument that looks at the universe and says, wow, this is a complex, purpose-oriented designed universe. And if it's a complex, purpose-oriented, designed universe, then itself, it points to a designer. It points to some cause, some being behind and designing all that is knit together. The fellow who came up with kind of the classic argument on this one uh, is a guy called uh, William Paley. And William Paley came up with the illustration uh, that says, listen, if you were walking out in the field and you picked up a stone, you'd look at the stone and you would say, well, that's kind of a natural process. But if you were walking in the same field and you picked up a pocket watch and you looked at the pocket watch, you would say, wow, neat design. Obviously, as you look at the pocket watch, in terms of the way everything is knit together, the way the gears work, the way the spring works, the way everything just keeps on ticking, that the reality is the pocket watch was made intentionally. It was made purposely. The pocket watch was made by someone who knew a whole lot about making watches. It was designed, and there is a designer behind it. That basically is the theological argument. It's simply saying, listen, all you have to do is look at the universe and you can see how complex and incredible it is. And only this could happen by virtue of design. Some examples. You can look at it in two realms. One is to look at it in the organic realm. The other is to look at it in the non-organic realm. In the non-organic realm, we look at things like this. The sun's interior temperature is estimated at over 20 million degrees Celsius, with the Earth located 93 million miles away from it. If the Earth were 10% closer to the sun, then there'd be too much heat upon the Earth. If the Earth were 10% further away from the sun, then not, there would not be enough heat upon the Earth. This is one that gets me. The Earth is moving around the sun at 70,000 miles per hour, while rotating on its axis at 1,000 miles per hour at the equator. It departs from a straight line by just one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. 
Mankind would be either burned to death if the earth would depart from that line by one-eighth of an inch or would freeze to death if it would depart from that line one-tenth of an inch. Isn't that amazing? Scary, huh? Yeah, awesome. Right? Just the na- obvious, incredible nature of God's design of the universe. Or we can just look at ourselves. You know, the Bible says marvelously and wonderfully are we made. Just, just look at ourselves. Just look at the reality of the intimate design of the human eye. The human eye can handle, handle 1.5 million stimulus messages at a time. Isn't that incredible? Whoa, I'm handling a lot right there, looking at you. Sorry. Yeah. Here's, here's a, a person would have to walk 50 miles each day to get the muscles in their leg to get the same amount of exercise that their human eye does. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, I, the irony is even Charles Darwin admitted to suppose that the, the, to suppose that the eye with all its uh, imitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, for the correction of spherical or chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest sense. Kind of an awesome admission there, right? The reality is, the theological argument says, look, all you got to do is look at how incredible uh, the universe is and say, obviously, design. That there is a designer behind the universe. And the, the whole idea of somehow the, the big accident that it just kind of evolved into existence just doesn't seem to add up when you look at the intricacies and the design uh, that God created, right? That'd be like saying, listen, I'm going to take a steel factory and a glass factory and a, and a wire factory and I'm going to put them all in one place and I'm going to have them all blow up at the same time and then when it's all done and the dust settles, it's going to be, be a beautiful automobile that works perfectly, Right? I mean, what's the probability of that? I mean, it's astronomically impossible. Right? And yet, this argument looks and says, listen, it is the incredible design of God. It leads us back to the incredible design of God. And all you have to do is look at Psalm 19. Nope, back one. Thanks. Psalm 19 says, The heavens keep telling the wonders of God, the sky, and the skies declare what he has done. Each day informs the following day. Each day announces the next. We aren't the, the first to understand the incredible nature of the universe itself just points to the existence of God. People like Abraham Lincoln uh, said it this way, I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth to, and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how he could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. It is the incredible witness of creation itself that says there is a designer, and there is a God. He is real, right? And it is not an accident. If you look at Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, as he spoke to those folks in Athens uh, about the unknown God that they were uh, building a statue to, Paul says, listen, this God made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and in earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He doesn't need help from anyone. He gives life, breath, and everything else to all people, that it is not an accident, it is the intention of God. And therefore, God exists. 
Ready for another argument? Make this one quick. Another argument is simply the moral argument, classic moral argument. The moral argument sums up by saying, hey, right or wrong, and it runs deep, that there is this part of us deep within us that whether we know God or whether we don't know God, whether we're in relationship with God or not in relationship with God, the reality is there's this innate part of us that simply knows right and wrong. That we don't have to work at feeling guilt. Does that make sense? We have to work at feeling guilt. That there's just this imprint upon us, this this part of our, our created nature that simply knows a sense of right or knows especially this sense of wrong. And that this goes across all cultures. That cultures that we have found who have no revelation of the existence of God. And yet, in those cultures, they still have this moral code and this sense of what is right and wrong. And so this points to a creator who imprinted us with just simply this ethical code deep within our own humanity. And the Bible points, points to that. Paul says to the Romans, some people naturally obey the law's commands even though they don't have the law. This proves that the conscience is like a raw law written in the human heart. It's just saying, look, there's got to be a God because of just the way we are. Just by virtue of whether we know him or don't know him, there is this nature about us that knows right or this nature about us that knows wrong. Perhaps the greatest argument for us, however, and if you're talking to somebody and you're trying to share with them about the reality of God, the greatest argument you can make is none of the above that we just talked about. Because those are all just nice, logical arguments, aren't they? Pretty, pretty straightforward, nice, logical arguments. The greatest argument is this argument right here, personal experience. is the argument that says, listen, <laughs> I don't know where you're at. I can just tell you, I know God. This is the most powerful argument in the universe. This is displayed to us because when God wanted us to know him, he sent a person, Jesus Christ. The greatest argument is simply you and I as Christ followers being able to share this truth with other people and say, listen, we can go through all the logical arguments and I can prove it to you this way and that way and this way, but I just want to tell you what it all is said and done. I know him. He's not just something that I know exists. I know God, and I know Him personally. And I can tell you about how God has worked in my life. I can show you how God has worked in the lives of other people. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews, he did the same thing. In Hebrews 11, he goes through a series of listing the lives of God's people, one after another after another, showing the incredible power of God in each of their lives. If we just look at Hebrews 11, it says, what else can I say? There isn't enough time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Their faith helped them conquer kingdoms. And because they did it right, God made promises to them. They closed the jaws of lions and put out raging fire and escaped from the swords of the enemies. Although they were weak, they were given the strength and the power to chase foreign armies away. Go ahead, the next one, Terry. Some women received their loved ones back from death. Many of these people were tortured, but they refused to be released. They were sure that they would get a better reward. 
when the dead are raised to life. Others were made fun of and beaten with whips, and some were chained in jail. Still others were stoned to death or sawed in two or killed with swords. Some had nothing but sheepskins or goatskins to wear. They were poor, mistreated, and tortured. The world did not deserve these good people who had to wander in deserts and on mountains and had to live in caves and holes in the ground. All of them pleased God because of their faith. What's the greatest argument? The greatest argument is the power of God unleashed in your life. It's to look at the lives of Christ followers from generation to generation and say they could not do this on their own. They could not do this on their own. The proof of God's existence is in the way you and I live our lives, not depending on ourselves, but trusting in the power and the strength of the God who is real. You see the big difference in all these arguments? The big difference is that all the arguments that we did before we got to this one, the the cosmological argument, the theological argument, the moral argument, those are good, wonderful head arguments, aren't they? This one, this one is a heart argument. This is the one that says, listen, I know God not simply as one who exists, one who I'm aware of in my logic, in my head, but I know God because He lives right here. And I depend on Him every single day. That's what Jesus said our relationship with Him would be. If you look at John 14, John 14 says, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. And what will they do? We will come to them and we will make our home with them. God is real. God is real. How do I know? Because he lives with me every day. You see, ultimately, that's the question. The question for us, each one of us, is God real or is God fiction? Have we created our own kind of God and says, look, he should look like this or he should look like that? And in fact, usually our favorite God looks a whole lot like us, just a little bit taller and a little bit stronger. And a little bit thinner for me, right? Or are we ready to release ourselves to the reality of the real God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you and your graciousness and your love for us promise that not only come and make your home with us, that we can live in strength and power because of your real presence in our life but that you will make yourself known to us, that you're willing to reveal to us all there is to know about you. And so we ask in this day and in the coming Sundays that you would just use these messages in this time as a way to, to speak to each one of us about how real you are, not just a, a real God of the world and a real God of logic, but a real God of our hearts, the real God who sustains our lives and gives us hope and life, who gives us a future and the promise of life everlasting. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord.